Welcome to MDAP, the healthcare podcast for Disney Pause. Today's episode, Wait, Lesbians Have a Choice, featuring Kelly Dunham. My name is Kelly Dunham. My long identity list is I call myself a genderqueer, ex-nun, nurse, author, and nerd comic. Uh, nobody really knows what a nerd comic is, but ex-nun people are pretty... They always feel like, you know, ex-nun to lesbian nurse, like that's some kind of weird transition. I'm like, that's not a transition. That's not even a fork in the road. You know, that's a very, very smooth path. And I guess nerd comic is, um, well, my niece says, it's just a, uh, a stand-up comic who really likes books a lot. And I was like, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. I feel like that uh, that pretty much describes me. Um, yeah, I'm now I'm really uh, consider myself uh, well into middle age, although um, in the queer world, I feel like being middle-aged actually makes you an elder. Um, definitely people have started to treat me like an elder. I feel like, you know, stuff I was saying 10 years ago, nobody was listening to. I was saying the exact same thing, but now people are, oh, yes, that's, that's very smart. <laughs> really? I just got old. <laughs> you know, I grew up in a stoic Germanic uh, farm family in rural Wisconsin. I always tell the story about, I don't know, remember the Rosie Greer song, um, It's All Right to Cry? Uh, it was like the big defensive end for, I think, one of the Chicago football teams, you know, singing, it's all right to cry. And uh, somehow we got a hold of that record when I was a kid. Um, I'm sure our parents did not buy it for us. We must have checked it out at the library. And uh, my dad came walking through the room and he's like, I hope nobody's getting any ideas around here. We're like, no, 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 we aren't getting any ideas. Right? So that's kind of where I come from in terms of, you know, relationship to going to the doctor. That wasn't really something that we did. Pain in life were just things to get through. Um, and I feel like that really influenced a lot of my healthcare decisions, which then in turn influenced the way you're treated by healthcare providers. My gender identity, and I feel like probably my sexual orientation or my relationship status, actually I've had fantastic interactions with providers around that generally. Um, I think there's a couple reasons for that. I mean, when I left the convent, I remember my first GYN appointment, and um, it was at Planned Parenthood, and the NP was like something, something, something reference, you know, because sometimes people like to share toys. And I was like, wait, lesbians use toys? I had no idea. Like, that's where I found out that lesbians use toys was at Planned Parenthood. And just in reference, like, she wasn't trying to give me that. She was just trying to help me, um, you know, figure out some different things. So that was fantastic, right? Like, that's where I got my education. And then also because a lot of my interactions with the healthcare system has been as a caregiver of a femininely presenting person, um, and so she automatically gave me cre credibility, you know, um, that uh, that this is a person that, uh, like, oh, I know what box to put you in. You're, you know, a lesbian with long hair, and, you know, I'm a lesbian with short hair. Um, sometimes that's a little bit more difficult for people or whatever. I don't know if you're exactly a lesbian, but you know what I mean. So I kind of had that, um, that, that cred that comes along with that, like looking like something that, like, that people can relate to. In fact, I even talk about when I'm talking about building caregiving teams is, you know, when you go to the emergency room, if you and a bunch of your entire household full of, you know, uh, tattooed, pierced, you know, purple hair queers, you know, those are my people. It's not, but, but take along somebody who's not, you know, tattooed and, and pierced and purple haired, if you can, for the ER, um, so that there's somebody who's like a spokesperson for folks. Um, I found that that can be really helpful. So I had two partners who, at age 38, died of cancer, um, and both of those had really extensive caregiving situations um, uh, involving a lot of people, involving a team. 
And so the first person, Heather, she was very, she, when we started dating, she'd had cancer a while. She was kind of, she was like a cancer expert, you know, she knew how to talk to doctors. But with Cheryl, you know, she was newly diagnosed. We'd been dating a couple of years and she was diagnosed and was not kind of aggressive um, in the way that she worked with healthcare providers. And um, I can remember at some point when they were like, you know, not, they're putting off a PET scan for a couple weeks or something, where it just seemed like this was not something that could really put off. Um, that I was out in the hallway, you know, shouting and, uh, you know, well, something, 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 you know, something, our lawyer, blah, blah, blah. And I walked back in the room and Cheryl was like, who was that out there shouting? I was like, oh no, no, that was me. That was actually me, you know? And, you know, there's a whole kind of, that was about the time when, you know, the honey badger videos came out that, you know, uh, honey badger doesn't care. He just takes what he wants. So I was kind of, you know, had to be a honey badger and that kind of situation. <laughs> Cheryl said, whenever we walked away, they always said, why is the fat one always angry? <laughs> um, but I actually think that there are situations in which, really, right, because even as um, a female-identified masculine-presenting person, of course I have masculine privilege, right, like that. Uh, I mean, you know, sometimes it's just like, oh, people see me as a freak, but when people see me as, like, an actual masculine person, then actually yelling in that way, um, and these are just in severe situations, not, you know, in regular situations, but really, really s serious situations, um, that becomes more culturally appropriate than if I, instead of, I'm not hysterical, right, I'm just mad. Um, so in that kind of situations, it's actually, I have to say, is helpful. You know, it has been helpful, which is, you know, this weird use of masculine privilege um, in kind of a surprising way, like, oh, you know, I have huge breasts, but since I have <laughs> short hair and I'm wearing a tie, you're going to listen. Some of the work that I've done around like queers and uh, PTSD stuff stopping us from getting healthcare is really, really partly come out of my own experience. Um, so when Cheryl, um, you know, Cheryl was very healthy, you know, until she was not. Um, you know, she worked out three times a week, and she was a vegetarian, and she'd been sober for a decade, and and you know, she's just a very healthy person. So when she got sick, it was, I mean, to say the least, surprising. Um, my brother, who's in the military. Uh, sent me an email um, that it's like perfectly uh, only a person who was lifetime military could have written and he said uh, you would think that more than that one situation of this kind would be more than enough <laughs> I was like yeah you would think so Cheryl was she had Hodgkin's lymphoma which 85% of people who have Hodgkin's lymphoma are with the initial um, chemo protocol that they've been using since the 70s are completely cured um, sometimes they might have like a secondary leukemia 30 years later, but they're completely cured of Hodgkin. But 3% of people uh, who are treated with bleomycin for any reason, which is one of the chemo drugs that they use for Hodgkin's, uh, die as a result of it. Um, so those seemed like pretty good odds, um, and I definitely wasn't looking at the bleomycin piece of it. So she developed shortness of breath, which her oncologist said was related to her falling um, hemoglobin, which seemed reasonable, but it turned out to be bleomycin damage. And if you look at, if you, you know, put bleomycin into the research search engines, a lot of what you find is they're using like, like, wait, why were they giving these rats bleomycin? It's because it's one of the best ways to induce severe lung damage, right? Like, so if you need an animal to have severe lung damage. So, um, and once it really starts um, in that kind of full way, it's really hard to really hard to reverse um so it causes like a uh, kind of a chemical pulmonary fibrosis so because of that cheryl was in the hospital for three months struggling for breath that whole time um for a time she was in the icu and and um 
uh, on a, a, a step-down floor full of other people struggling to breathe, which I have to say was an extremely unpleasant place. And because of that, that was much different than Heather, who really, she was hardly in the hospital at all. She didn't die in the hospital, she died at home. Um, so even though I was very comfortable, I think like, I just, I just moved into the hospital. Um, the first night when she was um, in the step-down unit and struggling to breathe, I got a text in the middle of the night that said, I can't breathe and I'm scared. And I was like, that's a text I'd never want to get again. So I just moved into the hospital. I actually made a bed on the radiator next to her, her bed. In fact, at one point, I heard one of the nurses giving report, and they included me in the report. They said, like, oh, Kelly had a good night, too. And I was like, wow, I've definitely become a part of this team. And a lot of those nurses were fantastic to us. Like, she really had good nursing care, but it was a terrible situation, you know. I, I was very triggered, right? Like, I was, this is, I was not expecting to go down this road. She couldn't breathe, and that's kind of, I think, in comparison. Even to somebody in pain, it's just a really, really, really hard thing. And so there are a lot of really, really hard nights um, of just watching her pulse ox go up and down and um, just not being able to do anything to help her, you know. And so luck, I mean, I was super lucky that, well, I'm so grateful for, you know, I could not have done that if I hadn't had really good, great extensive caregiving team, you know, I'd say like in the middle of the night, all of a sudden a hamburger would appear in one hand and a Diet Mountain Dew in the other, and I wouldn't even know how they'd gotten there, you know. So that was only made possible by a friend. So, but after that, you know, she passed away in the hospital, and actually very, considering that it was the ICU, in a very peaceful way, you know, venting wouldn't actually help the situation, so I signed a DNR, and, you know, she died in my arms without being coded, and, you know, for an ICU death, it was, it was, it was okay. One of my friends was there. She'd just stopped by. <laughs> She'd just stopped by to like bring me dinner, and and she was like, "Do you want me to stay?" And I was like, "You can stay, but this is gonna be a different night than you've ever had." And she was actually fantastic and helped help me when Cheryl's mom showed up. I had called her, but she took a long time again. She was like furious at me and furious at the world, as as somebody might be. But ended up being a really, I mean, a horrible situation that was only made okay by the presence of like my friends and, and other caregivers. Anyway, so that kind of extended uh, hospital interaction, even though I felt, because I'm a nurse, I feel like comfortable in the hospital culture, um, when I had to have a knee replacement, and especially when I had to have a knee replacement was just, you know, kind of all the things that can go wrong with a replacement, like I had uh, an initial infection um, that they did like this washout where I was in the hospital and, you know, emergency surgery in the middle of the night, and then they eventually had to remove it and do that kind of thing where they take it out and then leave it out for six weeks well it ended up being almost four months so you have no need for four months anyway all that to say my my experiences in the hospital because of having those really bad experiences with Cheryl I was much more like the environmental triggers were much more difficult for me and between the se first and second surgeries I actually had EMDR which I didn't even know that I believed in <clears throat> but it really it helped a lot um, and it really gave me a lot of sympathy for folks who have kind of, who, like, for example, had, like, a lot of childhood surgeries, you know, which a lot of people in the hospital, um, like, people with, like, chron chronic situations had a lot of childhood medical care that, you know, especially 35 years ago was not, they were was not into consent and, you know, like, nice things painted on the children's wall hospital and that kind of thing, you know, um, and folks were separated from their family. So it just gave me a lot of sympathy for folks who, um, really struggle to get health care because the 
the environment of healthcare is so, and I'm using this like in the classic sense, like triggering to them. They sent a first year resident to talk with me the first time about um, whether Cheryl wanted to be intubated. And she was, her voice went up at the end of the sentence, right? She was like, so Kelly, we need to talk about whether Cheryl wants to be intubated. And then she was also playing with her split ends, which I don't actually understand that whole, like, you know, the playing with the split ends or what people are doing. I guess they're, they're trying to take out their split ends. I don't know, but I know that's a thing people do, right? I don't know. I, it's definitely something I see women do, but I don't, you know, and, um, both those things, like, I appreciated that they saw that the way that our relationship was that, I mean, and I'd say, like, that at, um, the hospital that she was at, they really actually, they kept their eyes out for, like, they made sure that my, the healthcare proxy was, they made the copies, and they said, okay, there's one in front of the, the chart, and one in, like, please hold one on your person, and let's put one, let's tape one to Cheryl's bed, and that kind of thing, like, they actually were more worried about it, um, because her mom was, uh, you know, had some reservations and misgivings about me, um, they, they were actually more conscious of it than, than me, which I appreciated, but, so, but this particular conversation where the person was just completely unprepared, like, um, just completely unprepared, like, no, did nobody tell her? I actually felt like, okay, let's sit down and I'll tell you about how to tell a patient bad news or to like, you know, start the conversation. I really felt, um, uh, you know, like somebody needs to coach this person. And I did, I actually talked to the, um, the attending about that, not because I wanted to get her in trouble, but just because I would really, if I was supervising somebody, I would definitely want to know that. Um, so that was one thing that was just like so ludicrous. Like I was like, no, you have to, if you are talking about ventilation, you have to go down at the end of their sentence. You have to, um, that should be taught. It just told me that she really was just, I mean, she was so scared, right? Like she was very, very scared. Um, I mean, it didn't help that I was like the, you know, the exploding queer person in the, um, you know, in the ICU. <laughs> Uh, you know, like I wasn't, like I thought, I have to be present for a report. You cannot do, you know, you can't do rounds with her without, without me being there, you know, and it was like a whole big thing because it was an open, open ward because it was a step-down unit, and so they, like, like, let me come in, but, you know, I already had the reputation of, like, losing my mind, which, um, was helpful, right? Like, they, we got exactly what we needed. At some point, they bought us, brought us a little refrigerator, you know, which was very <laughs> sweet, since they didn't have, like, any idea how to cook vegetarian food, which they're calling a kosher refrigerator, but then I, I had salami in it and stuff. I was like, I don't think this is a kosher refrigerator anymore, guys. Like, uh, you know, so they were really trying with us, but that was an example of, like, somebody who was just really, like, scared, scared to have that conversation. The palliative care team, like, definitely I was very close to. The palliative care team was great. Like, they just sent somebody down. Like, they, I had a person with a pager that I could page her number when Cheryl's mom showed up. And then she would, like, you know, re interact with Cheryl's mom and kind of take care of her energy. I mean, it was kind of amazing. Palliative care was kind of amazing. And I think of the <laughs> the situation, I mean, there's so many people who were really heroes uh, through, you know, through Cheryl's hospitalization. <laughs> there was a, um, uh, a nurse in the step-down unit that when they were having to take Cheryl to the ICU, you know, they were, so, you know, the thing is, if somebody's coming in, in a near-code situation into the elevator, everyone should jump out, and, um, the docs weren't, <laughs> weren't jumping out, and so she screamed, her name was Lucille, and she screamed, get out, and they all, like, were so panicked, and later Cheryl was like, oh my god, you're, she's my hero, um, and for myself, I can think of, um, the surgery that I had, which was at a, a different hospital than Cheryl was at, and they have a really good, 
nurse to patient ratio and I remember just I had you know all these drains and um uh I had a pick line there's just a lot of things hooked up to me so um when I needed to go to the bathroom it is really an extensive you know extensive unhooking experience and I woke up in the middle of the night and realized I had to go to the bathroom and I was like oh shit I said it just out loud just about that loud and um, then she showed up, and then a nurse just like poked her head and was like, "How can I help you?" And I was like, "Is this the call bell system? This is fantastic!" You know, folks that were just, uh, it just really made me realize, and it also made me realize like, oh, like those moments when I've been present for people, that made a difference. You know, even though it it might not feel like it from the other side, from the patient's perspective, it it makes a difference whether you treat them like a human being or not. You know. Now, this is going to sound like a random question, but thinking back to your time as a nun, what was it like interacting with healthcare professionals and, you know, what, what good moments, bad moments, or lessons learned that you'd love to pass on to healthcare providers taking care of nuns? <laughs> well, that's interesting. Nobody ever asked me that question. <laughs> I'm just curious. Congratulations. Um, <laughs> in 10 years, that is a question I have not ever been asked. So I was a missionary of charity, and so they're, like, not very much into health care. You know, basically, the missionaries of charity was, like, my childhood, but recreated with nuns, which I guess something is all, all something all of us do. I feel like the, the stories that I heard from folks, and this is, you know, this is a difficulty because um, especially the American population of nuns are aging, and they're being, they're not really, there's not enough young sisters to take care of them, which has always been the way it is, right? So folks are having, so folks are in secular nursing homes. I know one of the sisters talked about that they just didn't want men taking care of them. That was one of the things that was really, really hard, um, that folks talked about. And I feel like a nursing home, actually, if they're having men taking care of, doing personal care for nuns, like probably are pretty short staff, so I don't know what to say about that, right? I don't think that's anybody's first. Hey, we have a bunch of nuns. Let's have uh, let's have men take care of them. As a nun, would you like go to the gynecologist or do like primary care with secular healthcare providers, or would it be with other sisters doing the healthcare? Missionaries of charity, like they're you know they're not sending anybody to medical school, right? Like they, <laughs> that's not their jam. <laughs> Yeah, like, yeah, like changing bandages and uh, working in soup kitchens. That's their jam. Um, so uh, once in a while, I guess they've sent a nurse, like to uh, a nun to nursing school or whatever. And, and they do have a lot of medical, like sisters who do kind of, um, you know, like they have a hospice. So there's not a lot of, you know, they're doing like end stage care and that kind of thing. But um so that's not so they don't we didn't regularly like go for primary care and that kind of thing and it's actually been one of the things that really was just kind of a ludicrous problem like we talk about um so part of our thing was to kneel four hours right on the bare floor um and then you develop like calluses on your knees which you know who would think you could even get a callus on your knees but you can it's a kneeling callus and you know then we'd like you know, talk about well can we sit back on our like heels or something and then then the the conversation would always be like well sister so-and-so you know she's older and she's been doing this for a long time so her knees are messed up so you know she well, she doesn't and it's like wait you don't think this is cause and effect like maybe maybe we could like not kneel four hours a day we could just do this really hard work we do and then our our knees would l survive is it that kind of law, uh, you know, lack of under? No, it's not lack of understanding. I mean, it's lack of desire to implement the understanding of cause and effect. Um, but I did actually go to the GYN while I was a missionary of charity because I'd had a lot of 
bleeding. I'm trying to think about what that interaction was like. The Missionaries of Charity, you know, they wear the white with the little blue stripe, and so you get the little blue stripe the first time you um, you take your vows. Uh, so mine was white without the little blue stripe. I think we were just getting donated healthcare, and the person that I went to, 60% of the Missionaries of Charity, you know, since it was started in India, are Indian, uh, mostly from South India. Um, and the GYN, this was in New York City, was from India as well, and I think that that was done that was that would make most of the sisters much more comfortable perhaps than you know um kind of a random new york city doctor and she was very matter of fact about doing the exam it was it was kind of i mean it was a little bit more of a non-issue for me because this was not you know it wasn't my first julian exam i had you know been sexual before the convent and that kind of thing so it wasn't such a big deal for me but i could tell by the way she interacted with me that it had been a big deal for folks you know before me um so she was definitely really trying to make it easy did you feel like there was an assumption made that you had never been sexually active or do you think there was an awareness that someone can be a nun and still need a sexual history taken i don't think she asked me a question about sex <laughs> yeah i can't yeah i i mean it was a while ago and it was i was pretty tired but um yeah I think also like she wasn't there's only you know so few American sisters so I think it was a little like she maybe wasn't expecting me to show up <laughs> you know I don't know uh and yeah I'm not really sure I mean there was any any chance where you went actually went to the doctor when you were in a mission of charity that did seem kind of notable um I think they're a little bit better about it now I've heard from folks who've <laughs> who've left recently or were involved recently but they have do have kind of an old school way of, you know, well, you can offer it up or whatever. Even the idea of like getting therapy and that kind of thing isn't really, that's, you know, I remember they always just say like, well, just don't think about it. Oh, oh, just don't think about it. Okay, fantastic. <laughs> oh, I just won't think about it. I hadn't even thought of that as a solution. <laughs> Once in a while you run into like an ER nurse that's been doing their job too long, you know? But often it's the system, right? Like they're not actually, that nobody's trying to do a bad job, but it's just the system. The system is not, I mean, I would say, right? Like the biggest thing is that the healthcare system isn't based on, at all, on patient or client needs. It's completely based on provider convenience, right? Um, like I just think of them doing, they used to do weights um, in the step-down unit at six o'clock in the morning. Right. So what? Why would you do wait? Do you think anyone wants to be? Hey, I can't. Why? Could you please wait? Get me out of a solid sleep to weigh me? Um. Of course. No. That's completely about provider. I mean, when we do AM care in the hospital, that's completely about provider convenience, right? It doesn't have anything to do with when people are naturally waking up and want to feel refreshed or whatever. All that is based on, and that's not up to individual providers, right? Like you can't decide. If you're a nurse in a unit, you can't decide, oh, I do my AM care at 10 AM. Forget it. You'll never get your meds given, you know? Um, so I guess it's, you know, partly just about having the courage of knowing that there's other people who would advocate with you if you started to advocate for something different, you know? Good conditions for, I mean, for nurses, where I feel like that's, you know, the folks that I talk with most, good good working conditions for nurses are good um healthcare conditions for patients, you know, and that there's nothing wrong with advocating for those better nurse to patient ratios and those, um, those, 
you know, um, safer working conditions. A project that I started that I'm really proud of and that um, I want to see continue is this past February, I did something called organ recital, which I thought was a clever pun. Um, turns out organ recital also means like flatulence is a, uh, a, a slang word for flatulence, which I didn't know that. I don't know. I work with teenagers. I don't know how I missed that. But um, anyway, so it's a, um, a storytelling festival about uh, bodies, health and healthcare. care. Um, so we, I rented out um, Jack, which is a performance venue in, in Brooklyn. And we just for a week, we all got together, different folks. Um, and telling, um, sorry, uh, different folks got together telling to tell stories about bodies, health, and healthcare. Um, on the Tuesday of the week, we had, um, I had a friend curate a show. Uh, it was Valentine's Day called "I Heart My Pre-existing Condition: Stories of the Impact of the ACA," and we sold out. Like it was a sold-out show on Valentine's Day about insurance. Um, <laughs> it's amazing. That's what people wanted to talk about, right? Um, we had a show that was about death. That was amazing. Uh, Just Tom curated a show that was all um, POC and mostly queer, um, female-identified, called What is a Body, right? Like, what does it mean to um, be that person in the U.S. and have a body? Uh, and it was really amazing. One of the things that I felt like it really opened some performers eyes like uh, Ariel Beebe who's um, a stand-up comic you know pretty well known in her own right had been ne had never talked about she'd had leukemia three or four years ago um, and she'd never talked about it on stage and so because she had this very specific this very specific venue in which she could she did um, and people were it was very funny it was still very funny because when people talk about truth it's funny um, and it was really amazing, and so that was, like, I just wanted to, like, yell from the treetops, though, like, for people who are performers and think that they can't incorporate these really serious things into their performance, that, in fact, people are just hungering to hear those real stories. It's organrecital.org. I have a website, kellydunham.com, and it's Kelly with just an I, because I think my mom wanted me to be a cheerleader, so it's Kelly with an I, Dunham.com, and that's probably the easiest way. There's, um, a link... I have pretty much, not every workshop that I do, but many of the workshops I do, the descriptions are up and the ones that are CEUU ready um, for, um, specifically for nurses are up there. Um, you know, it's indicated the times and all that. So if folks are interested in me doing something and um, many times a workshop happens because people are like, oh, we're having this specific problem and then I design it around that. So, you know, I also do a lot of almost, um, you know, commissions of workshops, but but all the rest are up there. Um, and people can find me on Facebook and Twitter, which also is just Kelly with an I, Dunham, um, on Facebook and Twitter. Yeah, so those are, those are many ways you can find me. <laughs> You've been listening to MDASH, the healthcare podcast that gives you pause. For show notes for today's episode, visit www.em-podcast.com.